This is Cognation, the podcast about cognitive psychology, neuroscience, philosophy, technology, the future of the human experience, and other stuff we like. It's hosted by me, Rolf Nelson. And me, Joe Hardy. Welcome to the show. Okay, welcome to the podcast. Uh, today we have joining us uh, Dr. Brent Stanfield, who is the Director, Ed Director of Education for Graduate Medical S Education at Wayne State University. Uh, prior to that, he was a professor at the University of Michigan Medical School. Uh, and some of the research that he's done is on what it is that makes students succeed in medical school and how you measure success and what the best way is to train them. Uh, he's done quite a bit on quantitative methods. He's taught uh, quantitative methods courses. Uh, and today is going to talk to us about uh, trends in medical education, where it's going, and especially how medical education and doctors might reconcile themselves with the upcoming age of artificial intelligence, how you, how doctors can work with artificial intelligence to provide the best sort of healthcare. The article that we're basing a little bit of discussion on is from Stephen Wartman and Donald Combs, and it's called Medical Education Must Move from the Information Age to the Age of Artificial Intelligence. So Brent, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I will start you out with the question. So we'll get right into it. So what is the, what's the future of medicine and healthcare? And especially, I guess you have to think about what kind of world we should be training our future healthcare providers for. Yeah, that's exactly the problem. So um, the artificial intelligence is going to come to healthcare almost whether we like it or not. And doctors in general don't really <laughs> want it to. Uh, there's a lot of pressures in medicine to get to be more efficient and to to be faster and to be more accurate and to make fewer errors and to be more uh, cost effective. Uh, and a lot of that comes at at sacrificing uh, the time that doctors can spend with patients and the amount of so attention that we can give to patients' um, personal concerns and 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 fears and and thoughts. And so doctors' visits are getting shorter and shorter all in the name of efficiency and seeing more patients. Uh, and doctors are having to spend more and more time working with uh, medical record systems that have uh, sort of become more and more electronic-based over the last decade or so. Um, even in my career, when I first started, uh, I started at a hospital that was still using paper charts. Uh, so you would get ordered tests and uh, do referrals, and every, all this stuff would be uh, you know, faxed from office to office, and every patient would have this big sort of binder of paper, and uh, that would be your chart. And now it's all done on computers, which means that doctors have sort of, you know, over the last decade or so, sort of had to learn how to enter all this stuff into these computer systems, which are always changing and are now increasingly becoming smarter and smarter in the sense that um, they're starting to, you know, make decisions not for the doctor, but the default settings uh, are a sort of powerful driver of changing how healthcare is delivered because, you know, the choice to uncheck a box instead of check a box can have huge uh, economic downstream costs as, you know, as these things scale up. Uh, so the opting in or opting out of various tests um, changes how often that they're conducted. And so these kinds of changes are, are, are happening in healthcare. And in general, doctors find them 
uh, sort of stressful because it adds another layer of sort of administrative um, hullabaloo that they have to deal with. <laughs> and so we as medical educators uh, don't wrestle with this question enough. Um, from where I sit as a, as a residency program um, education director, my goal is to make sure that the you know, our residents are trained to be good practitioners of medicine. Um, but given the fact that they are going to be practicing medicine for the next 20 or 30 years, it's not quite clear to me what their job is even going to be like uh, with all of these, you know, as, as intelligent systems become more and more part of their workflow. And so that's sort of why I bring this question to the table. And I'm really interested in hearing your guys' perspective um, since you wrestle more regularly with these kinds of issues than, than we do in, in medicine and in education. Well, I certainly have noticed that going to the doctor, uh, it, it does feel like half of the time is spent talking to a doctor while they're punching things into a computer. And it also does seem that there's there's more, maybe more discussion back and forth between myself and a doctor where you know, they may not know everything there is to know about a certain area of medicine. And they may say, well, you know, I just saw this paper that came out that had something to do with it. Uh, let's take a look at this together. So there just seems to be a shift where the level of expertise invested or the level of expertise that a patient expects from a doctor is more of a partnership than a one-way street where the doctor holds all the information. Um, is that something yeah, there's that... so much information available online now, right? And then and, and also with the advances in technology, it, it may be the case that there are things that are coming online that, that the patient might be available, might have information available even before at the same time that the doctor does. Sure, with WebMD and everything like that, yeah. Yeah, it's becoming a real, um, it, it, listening to the doctors talk in general, they it is definitely a reality that patients come in having already Googled all of their symptoms mm. and the patient will come in already sort of with a, a differential diagnosis that's already been whittled away. And oftentimes a, uh, a patient will have sort of pre-decided what they think they have mm. and they come to the doctor more just to sort of get a treatment for the thing because the a doctor is now... for a certain medicine or yeah, yeah, a certain exactly. procedure. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we see this stuff, you know, there's advertisements on television, a lot of this stuff, you know, drug companies go straight to the consumer to say, ask your doctor about this particular drug. Uh, these are almost yeah, what, diagnostic commercials. They simply say, like, do you feel sad? Do you, are you feeling lonely? Do you not, you know, have trouble talking to people in, uh, in social situations? Well, ask your doctor about, you know, Wellbutrol or whatever. <laughs> They're basically yeah, I mean, telling you this is how you should interact with the healthcare system. It really, in terms of from the doctor's perspective, it really must affect their their priors. Exactly. When a patient comes in and says, hey, I have this or this. I mean, obviously, the doctor is like, wait a second, let's really get into this but and, and figure out what's going on. But at the same time, it must affect you know, how they start to think about it. Yeah, exactly. And we it's funny, too, because we, we train medical students to think to do what we call um, uh, backwards reasoning. So uh, I come into the clinic with back pain. And they will ask, okay, well, when did it start? You know, were you moving anything heavy? Uh, does it, is it worse when you're lying down? Does it hurt at night or in the day? You know, what, where exactly in the back does it 
the pain move around? Is it diffuse or acute? Like they'll ask all these questions to sort of get a picture of what might be causing it. And then we, we teach them to sort of make a list. We call it differential diagnosis, which is, well, it could be, you know, it could be your kidneys or it could be your muscles or it could be your bone or it could be just work stress. Um, it could be psychological. It could be neurological, right? So, and then they do the tests and the, the physical examination to try and uh, rule out as much as they can. And then whatever's left on the table after they've ruled things out, they try you know, well, maybe let's treat this. Let's treat it with a painkiller, or maybe we should treat it with a change in diet, or why don't you try sleeping with a special pillow? Like, try and start with the low-cost things. And that, and then rule out, you know, whatever doesn't work, that's probably not the problem. And then that's called backwards reasoning in the sense that you start um, with a bunch of possible causes and then end up working backwards towards whatever the actual cause is. And when... One thing that happens in, in medicine is in all expertise, um, when people get a lot of experience, they don't need to do this anymore. Like a doctor with a many, many years of experience under his belt will walk into a room, see a patient and just say, ah, this person is hypertensive. Like <laughs> I've seen it so many times. I know how it, it indicates, you know, I know how it, it, it manifests itself. And so they, and they end up doing what we call forward reasoning, which is they simply, then they have to decide to either prove themselves wrong but more often than not, they'll simply say, you know, listen to this patient's story, sort of talk about the logistics of a treatment and say, here's what I'm going to do for you. And they'll just kind of go with their gut because their gut is most often correct. And then, you know, but but that's the issue here is that there's that at odds, the, the experienced clinician is now at odds with these uh, computer based systems that want them to do the backward reasoning. It's a frustrating experience for an experienced clinician. And then it's also a frustrating experience for the for the educating, for, for the, the trainee, because they will be developing this expertise, but the system somehow won't be allow them to use it. So this is interesting, too. So your, your background is in cognitive psychology. So uh, teaching medical students, um, I mean, it sounds like a lot of this is about figuring out how to, how to teach medical students to reason in a correct way. And um, I'm sure you must have encountered or you must have thought about how you can reduce bias in in medical students. So all of the kinds of cognitive bias that we see, uh, the you know, the Kahneman and Tversky stuff, how you how you, basically how you get medical students and then doctors to think clearly about about all of this stuff. And then and then, of course, presenting this to a patient in the clearest possible way. So this seems like a, a different sort of skill than doctors had 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, there's been a lot of attention in the medical field, in medical education specifically, bringing in social scientists. Uh, and uh, there's a reason that, yeah, as a as a psychology PhD, uh, that was my first job out of graduate school was working in a medical education program because they were hungry for for that kind of perspective. Uh, and also, I should say, anthropology and sociology. Uh, Medicine's very, very sort of inclusive and wants to hear those kinds of perspectives because they recognize the 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 importance of that aspect of uh, the, and it's not their expertise, right? So our medical education system really weeds out um, the humanities and uh, we we pick the best physicists and the people who do best in organic chemistry. Those are the kids who end up going to uh, medical school. And then we sort of have to train them on you know how to communicate with patients and how to be you know we have to give them ethics classes and 
it's it's kind of a fascinating exercise. Sometimes I wonder if it would be smarter to do it the other way around, to take the humanists and train them up on the basic sciences. Because they may have some of the uh, maybe linguistic skills or humanistic kind of skills. Yes, exactly. Um, but at the same time, you know, communication's a skill like any other, and that's what we work on. We have a simulated patient exercise that we send all our residents through where we have actors who portray um, a patient who is just receiving bad news and is very upset or, you know, here's a scenario where the clinic you work at has made an error and this patient was, you know, told something that was incorrect and just found out that it wasn't true and is now very angry. And these are, you know, communications exercises and we video them and you know, we tell them, you should go watch this video, see how you reacted in the situation, like watch your own body language, watch the way you spoke and, uh, you know, watch it with, you know, one of the faculty members and get some pointers. It's a skill. It's kind of interesting to see, you know, at first <laughs> we do it with our first years, our first year residents and our second year residents. And the first year residents generally have a chip on their shoulder and say, like, whatever, like, I can do this. This is my job. I'm a doctor. And the second years come back and they're like, yeah, this is tough stuff. Like, I feel a lot. I see this every day and I've gotten a lot better at it. So how do you teach doctors to um, become experts in the in their field so that they think like an expert? Well, a lot of it's just osmosis. They um, I mean, clearly there's a lot of didactic training. So they they you know, the first and I should say, too, and this is maybe germane to the whole or central to the whole thing is that um, it takes a long time to make a doctor, right? So if you're in college and you decide you're going to be a doctor, you need to take a pre-med major full of courses. You need to take your organic chemistry and, uh, and, and your cell and molecular biology. And uh, when you get into medical school, it's basically, it's graduate school. We in the medical education call those kids undergraduates, um, <laughs> even though they, mm -hmm. they already got there. Uh, their BA or, or BS, and now they're going for their MD, and that's a four-year program. And so two years of really intensive classroom study, and then they have to take a, a, a very difficult uh, standardized test called the USMLE Step 1, and it is the Step 1 because there is a Step 2 and a Step 3 that they'll take later, and that's a lot of, of basic science. That's when they're, you know, they do that quintessential anatomy course where they have to dissect a, a body and take a, you know, huge organ systems courses and foundations of clinical practice, a lot of coursework. In the second two years of medical school, they're going to do what's called clerkships, where they basically shadow doctors in clinics, and they'll spend a month, you know, in, in an internal medicine, and then they'll spend a month on a, a obstetrics and gynecology rounds, and um, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the second two years. That's when they figure out what's, what they want to specialize in. And you'll see, if you ever go to a teaching hospital, um, you'll see a, an unusually young doctor wearing a coat. If, it, if, the cock, <laughs> if the coat only goes to their waist, it's a short coat, they're oh. a medical student. They're a third or fourth year student. And the doctor, your, your, your primary doctor will say, is it okay if Dr. Smith you know, watches this? And you have the right to say no, by the way. You always have the right to say no. But if you say yes, then that, you know, that's a third or fourth year medical student who's just watching and sort of shadowing and learning. Um, and then that's fine. It's fine if they're just watching, but I don't want to be uh, the first patient that 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 that, that guy uh, or gal cuts open, for example. <laughs> <laughs> someone well, has to be the first, right? Yeah, someone does have to be the first. Exactly. There is a there is a model. I think it's in the paper that I sent out uh, 
there's a model in, in education, in medical education, they, they say, uh, see one, do one, teach one. And that's literally true. That's how a lot of doctors think. If I've seen it done once, then I can do it. And if I've done it once, then I can teach it. And uh, that's how a lot of um, the skill set moves through the, the medical education community, which is, is a little eye-opening when you see it happen. Yeah, I, I think also this kind of start looping back to the topic of technology and the adoption of technology. It seems like one of the things that is maybe not emphasized in medical school, but may become more important as time moves on is how to interact with these tools of these machines that doctors are going to be increasingly relying on, whether it be robots or, uh, you know, artificial intelligence systems that provide either diagnostics or diagnostic ex uh, assistance. So actually running those machines starts to become part of the part of the job. Yeah. Running them, uh, sort of dealing with them, figuring out how to cooperate with them. And like you said, Rolf, increasingly, and I've noticed this too when I see the doctor, they're wrestling with a computer while they're trying to talk to you, which is itself a distraction. But it's also completely necessary because they can't, this is how they document that the visit happened. And when you come in in six months or see another doctor or, you know, your, your problem changes, that doctor is going to look at, you know, this medical record, this electronic record to see what happened. As these things become more sophisticated, the the wrestling and the distraction I, I I fear might get worse, but I think that the engineers are trying to make it better, and I'm not quite sure uh, which one's gonna <laughs> how it's gonna shake out. Well, I well, guess if you're yeah. spending that much time training a medical student, so however you know t many more than your ten thousand hours to acquire expertise in a in the area of medicine. You really want to make sure that you're utilizing the time of these doctors wisely. So maybe you're in a good position to suggest what the core competency of a of a doctor is and how they should be spending their time most efficiently. Is it? I mean, should you be should you be delegating some of these tasks of documentation? Is it just a waste of doctors' time? They should be they should be, you know, spending all of their time making diagnoses or speaking with patients what's the what is the best use of a healthcare provider's time yeah so right now there is a growing need for what are what we call scribes which would be simply someone who's there to sort of be the doctor's human computer interface right so instead of the doctor typing things in while he or she is talking to you the scribe is doing the computer stuff and um it is shown it is, it's pretty demonstrable that having a scribe, paying a person to be a scribe for a doctor, allows the doctor to see more patients in a day, which more than, more than pays for the scribe's time. You just have two big problems. One is that you can't really commit, uh, convince the administrators that that's true, mm. <laughs> that paying more people is per se uh, paying more money. And so the, the fact that it you know, it, it ends up being a cost saving is sort of hard to convince um, the administrators. And the second one is I, I worry, like the more people you have in the in the communication chain, the more possibility there is for errors. So right uh -huh. now, the doctor is the one who enters it into the record. It is the doctor's judgment and the liability rests you know, with the doctor who made the decision. Whereas if you do this intermediary system, you know, a transcription error, 
becomes a medical error. And, uh, and that might be a big problem. And that's where I actually see a lot of this technology going with the voice recognition and sort of intelligent systems that might be able to sort of figure out what a doctor is trying to accomplish and then maybe insert some administrative control over we, the, the big system thinks that's a mistake, so don't do it. You know, uh, I, I think that's sort of where a lot of the intelligent systems are going to end up being, being a, basically trying to be a, an electronic scribe. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely the, the component around the electronic medical records and how those are, uh, you know, kept and maintained over time. But there's all, I mean, one of the areas that I've worked in a little bit is computer assisted, uh, detection yeah. or computer assisted diagnosis. And, uh, one of the things that comes up in that world is the idea of probability and the, uh, and how much the, the machine is affecting a doctor's view of the probability of something, uh, being either there or not there and how difficult it, what, what occurs to me in thinking about that is how difficult it is to think about probabilities. Humans don't do well thinking about probabilities. That's true. And I wonder how it seems that maybe doctors also aren't really taught to think about things in terms of it's 80% likely that this person has this problem or that problem, but more to your point of differential diagnosis. Like let's go down the decision tree. The end of the decision tree will be at a, def a definitive diagnosis. We'll know what exactly this patient has. I mean, in the case of artificial intelligence, for example, let's say you had uh, a you know computer vision system for radiology, and this device detects, say, for example, uh, you know lung cancer. It's a very difficult thing to see on a on a scan. It's going to give you some indication where tumors may be, but it's ultimately up to the doctor to decide if that is or is not a, a tumor. And so it's like, <clears throat> now you're starting to deal with the probability that this is or isn't a tumor. And uh, I feel like that's a huge challenge to everyone involved. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I first got into medical education, I, I remember working with uh, radiologists around exactly this problem. And they are very big proponents of just classic like signal detection theory, the stuff we learned in you know, our, our psychophysics classes and the but the big problem is you know what's the right answer right like in a signal detection task you generally know whether the signal is present or not as the experimenter and that's how the statistics are built but with something like is this a, a tumor or not you know oftentimes you just kind of have to wait until the patient is dead and then you can test it um, which is kind of too late, <laughs> which is too late. But yeah. But yeah, but you feed that system, you know, feed it back and you can, if you have scans from people, you know, five or 10 years ago, and then you know whether that turned into lung cancer or not, uh, then you can build those predictive systems. Um, yeah, yeah no, it, for seems, sure. it, it seems as though, I guess there were, what was that uh, from a few years ago where, uh, recommendations for breast cancer screening were changed because... Yes. Maybe you can just say something about that, because I think you'd know more about that than than I would. Well, yeah. So again, just like classic signal detection problems, you you there's two types of errors you can make, right? You can have the false positive where you say this person has breast cancer and so we are going to treat it when in fact they don't. And you're going to have the false negative where you just sort of miss it. They have cancer. You didn't see it. Uh, and it gets worse. And we generally worry about the latter. We're always worried about missing 
a diagnosis. What a tragedy it is when somebody finds out they have cancer when it's advanced to the point where we can't really do much about it. And so we, you know, try to to err on the side of detecting things more which and with more tests and more scans and and without a consideration of the cost of a false positive that, precisely that, and those costs aren't just economic you know finding out having a doctor tell you you have cancer is a is terrible mm-hmm. and you don't really want to put somebody through that experience if they don't have cancer uh, it also eats uh, well, away think, at the credibility of medicine in general if if doctors are handing out false positive diagnoses. Um, if there's a lot of that anecdotally going on, you're going to have fewer people taking doctors seriously. And it just seems impossible to get a patient to, to uh, not request a scan when they feel as though there's a possibility that they could learn information that they didn't know from that scan. Exactly. In fact, it's it's almost, there's kind of a boutique medicine problem. I haven't heard about it in a while, but a while back there was a lot of worry because older people of means were just having full body scans. You mm. just go to an MRI, they'll take a complete, you know, head to toe scan of you and have a radiographer look over and say like, well, this might be a problem and that might be a problem and that might be a problem. And you can imagine it's just ripe for false positives. It makes sure you, there's it, definitely it a false po- yeah, yeah, there's a false positive problem. But I think, you know, as the individual, I mean, thinking about it from the perspective of the system, sure, there's additional costs that come into play. But if you're the individual, uh, or even if you think about it from the, the, the grandmother test, like what would you, how would you want your grandmother to be treated in a certain situation, right? Right. You know, the, uh, you would want to get the test to see uh, if there was some probability that you may or may not have a certain condition, if there was, if you felt there was a real risk there. You know, maybe there's a, maybe there's some individual differences on that. I th- I feel like I'm of that mindset too. But you know, people that um, get say DNA testing, even just the partial DNA testing from 23andMe or something like that, I think there's a range of curiosities about what people want to know about their odds of having a particular disease. And I think it all, a lot of it comes down to, and the challenge really gets back to my original point, which is that we have a very difficult time understanding probabilities, right? The idea that, all right, you've got like a 20% greater chance of having, you know, hypertension. Well, that's actually basically nothing. Right. Right. 20% so, higher chances because the, the, the base rate is so low. I mean, maybe hypertension is a bad example because base rate is relatively high, but let's say some really, you know, Unlikely well, lung cancer disease. is a good example, yeah. People exactly. are very worried about lung cancer, and the incidence is not as high as you think. And a oh, 20% increase or decrease isn't as big a deal as you think it is. So, really, okay, so just to clarify, so you mean, so if it is, if you have a 0.1% probability of getting lung cancer, then a 20% increase in that 0.1% is, it means your overall chance is still very, very low. That's right. Exactly. And getting that you know, point across to people is difficult, especially it's like, oh, well, you know, there's a certain percentage chance that this or isn't is or is not a tumor is something that is not even really expressed. I don't feel like in, in the context of medicine, they're just presented as you do or do not have something. That's right. And the, it's funny that the, the idea of a diagnostic test being the correct answer is a, is a misunderstanding, I think. Uh, that doctors have to kind of fight against. Every test has a sensitivity and a specificity to it, and a you know a, a hit or a miss 
uh, isn't the correct answer. You have to sort of weigh that, you know. Right. No, absolutely. And, you know, especially when you start to talk about, like, for example, the systems that we were developing, you know, uh, for detecting strokes, you know, would send an alarm or alert depending on if, you know, there was a potential occlusion, uh, large vessel occlusion in the brain detected in the scan from the, from the algorithm. This is like maybe 90% sensitive, 90% specific. There's still, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of times it's going to send you a false negative or, uh, you know, or uh, send you a false positive or not send you uh, a false negative. So, but the doctor has to then take into account the fact that this machine is telling them that there's potentially a stroke there, uh, right. a, a clot there. And, and, and so it, it affects, must affect their bias and their, in their judgment. But also then of course there's the liability issue that you mentioned before as well. Right. And it gets even more complicated with sort of, uh, maybe psychosocial type things like is this person um, exhibiting signs of depression or um, am I going to see am I am I seeing signs of somebody who's experiencing domestic abuse right where you see a you see a behavior or a patient says something and then you have to make the decision whether to pull the trigger on this like am I going to set into motion a, a bunch of treatment decisions that are really going to have a big impact on this person's life and and the diagnostic tests involved are very they're fuzzy right there's a lot of error so there there really are a lot of judgment calls that need to be made and then on top of that and you to get back to kind of the psychophysics model doctors have a stat that i'd never seen before in psychology they call number needed to treat right yeah and number needed to treat is it it's i can't remember exactly the right ratio but it's a way of turning a log odds around uh, false positives and false negatives into the, the number of times you have to say yes this person has this thing before you can save one life wow i've never i've never heard of that that's interesting yeah so doctors are actually doing this calculation not just on a patient to patient level but they're treating a population how many times do i have to you know give this medicine out to people who i suspect have this disorder in order to successfully have one outcome one positive outcome so it's a straight Uh, out cost benefit analysis and yeah Saving one life is the, or is it saving one life or is it doing good to? It's generally saving one life, but it's, you know, it generalizes to any positive outcome. And and number needed to treat is sometimes, you know, 20 or 30 or 40, which means that you're throwing away 29 of your treatments are not saving that person's life. But you just don't know which, you know, which one of the 30 is the one. I think that might be a, a good place to take a break. Okay, so I, I'm going to, I just want to start it out like this. So I noticed on the back cover of my New York Times magazine today, there's an ad from Mount Sinai Hospital, and it says, if you need robotic assisted surgery, consider whom the robot is assisting. I thought that was an interesting and especially relevant thing for this conversation, right? Because the doctor's role here is someone that is there to be trusted and who's kind of the human element to an otherwise, um, know electronic and and robotic system so i i I wonder what sort of speculations you might have on long-term the long-term future of the role of a doctor and of artificial intelligence systems in 
healthcare. I mean, you know, long long time scale, ideal world, if everything develops and we get useful kinds of AI, what's the role of the doctor? What kinds of tasks can be algorithmatized and what sorts of, you know, what what's left for a doctor to do? Yeah, I think in in general, like if we go far enough out in the future, you either have the rope you know, the robot apocalypse where mm-hmm. healthcare has just been completely automated and you, the patient, have no say. Algorithms are simply deciding what is best for the population and the society and your health concerns are, you know, of no concern. Well, and <laughs> I think u- if we're, your if we're utility actual, as a person is. If we're, if we're in an actual hellscape type robo apocalypse, um, I think we have there's all kinds of medical torture that these robots can do. And oh, sure, of course. Even... That's right. It could get even worse than simple. That goes without saying. <laughs> yeah, well, of course. But I mean, in a like short, I mean, not short, but like let's say intermediate term, you might have a system, for example, where you'd have a machine that integrates like a scanner and a robot. And so like, for example, if you went in for a stroke and the the the, the scanner basically identifies that you have a clot in your brain. The robot might be able to, you know, put in the catheter, pull out the clot, and you come out of the scanner and, you, you know, your stroke is gone. And maybe there's some human intervention there. Maybe the human is somehow controlling the robot a little bit or, or at least, you know, telling it to go or not to go. But maybe, you know, a human being never actually touches you in any way during that whole process. And I've heard some people say that they feel that's maybe only 10 to 15 years away where something like that could be possible. Yeah, I think surgery is a real growth area for a lot of these intelligent systems. Um, it, the, the sort of delicate hands. And we already kind of have this sort of these laparoscopic tools where the, you, know, you can basically take somebody's appendix out now without cutting them open. You, know, you need one puncture wound to get a camera in there and another puncture wound to get this sort of special multi-fingered tool in there uh and that's it and uh you know once you're in with a camera and a and a tool it's just a guy playing kind of a video game it's fascinating instrumentation and and i don't see why that stuff can't be more and more if not completely automatized can be more um uh guided by intelligent systems the same way you know self-driving cars are becoming more sophisticated over time and the the role of the human in that maybe becomes more of a a judgment and a and a decision tool rather than the person who's actually uh, guiding the the little movements of the little machine that's in your body. I think there's a lot of of growth there. Um, w- what's interesting to me is that we're fighting against a a, a growing. Um, sorry, we're not really fighting against it. It's coming, and we have to learn how to integrate it. I went to a conference. Uh, medical educators conference where the plenary speaker was speaking about the real problem of of physician depression and physician stress and burnout. We lose about 400 doctors a year to suicide, which is about the size of a large graduating class of medical is that school. In, is that worldwide or? That's in America, just in the U.S. Oh. And um, a lot of that is just the 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 profession is becoming more and more stressful. And a lot of that is because doctors are feeling that they're losing agency, that they're simply becoming cogs in a big healthcare machine. And a lot of this uh, medical medical records stuff, electronic medical records stuff we're talking about is part of it, that they're, they are becoming sort of data entry specialists 
and having less and less control over the kinds of um, care they can give their patients. And it's I mean, how much like of that is not sorry. what they signed up for. Sure, It's not what they signed up for. And it's also, you know, when you're they're the front lines talking to patients who are upset or scared. Basically, they are the tools of a increasingly sophisticated administrative and, and, and um, computer based scheme to sort of deliver care effectively or and efficiently. Um, and so the it's a stressful position to put doctors in. And I worry that that on our road to the robo, robot apocalypse, we marginalize doctors more and more to the point where we sort of break the system down. And at this particular conference, so that was the plenary speaker, later in the conference was the team, the IBM team, who were there with the, the medical version of Watson. And they really wanted to sort of push this. They had a different um, view of things, I'm guessing. Well, yeah, it was interesting because they were selling... Watson the, with a name and referring to Watson as in sort of anthropomorphic terms and saying, you know, Watson can help you. Watson is an assistant. Watson is a... Watson is not here to hurt you. There's exactly. nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> but of course, Watson is not a person. Watson is just a, a large algorithm. And I don't know why IBM is making the choice instead of... And all they have to do is, is treat this algorithm as a decision-making tool that a physician can use to make better decisions. But instead, they're, they're sort of trying to sell it as a sort of a fake person, a fake doctor. Does, so, so would the view of IBM, do you think, be that tools like Watson can alleviate some of the, all of these burdens that healthcare providers have to go through, all of the stuff that doctors have to do? Watson yes. can kind of lighten the, lighten the load. I think that's, I think that's the, the basic the basic logic behind it. But I worry, and again, and I don't mean to dog on IBM, they're doing great work and it's amazing what these decision tools can do. It's, I just worry that the salesmanship around it and treating these and even just calling them intelligent systems or artificial intelligence, I think does a disservice to actual human intelligence in that, you know, these are tools and we are building them and they can be useful or they might not be useful. But instead, well, I think also, yeah. What what is kind of happening is that we're assuming that they will be useful and we're going to sort of edge out the humans who've been doing this work uh, in order to make more room for these systems that we assume will take over. And I'm not right, sure if I mean, that's the best thing for the, you know, for professions such as healthcare, at least in the near term. Yeah, I mean, I think for Watson in particular, you know, they're selling it as a thing but it's not a thing it's not even an algorithm watson is a, a program of uh it's a commercial program and it's many many algorithms it's many many programs i also feel like just from from like a commercial standpoint from like a technical standpoint ibm is trying to boil the ocean rather than tackling a specific problem and solving it really really well and providing a tool that works great for one situation they see that that approach is not really big enough in some way for for them to move the needle so they need to basically solve all of healthcare and they're trying to do that with their watson brand which is really what it is it's just a brand mm -hmm. and rather than being really good at solving a, a particular problem which is why so many startups are having success solving one or more smaller problem whether it be in medical records or you know uh, transcription or 
computer-assisted diagnosis or computer-assisted detection, all these different areas where really you see that the, the best tools and technologies, a lot of them are being built by smaller startups because they're tackling one problem at a time rather than trying to solve all of healthcare. And to your point, I mean, they're thinking about them more as specific tools that a person can use to help them in their job versus trying to basically take over the job of the doctor, which is in some ways what I, I feel that they're trying to do. It relates I, to the, the idea of like how much we are willing to trust these machines and at what stage. I feel like this is, gets back to the idea of probability. We're not thinking about, in terms of probability. How likely is it that this, this machine is correct and using it as a tool that we can use to help and aid our judgment, which is where we should be because we're assuming that the, the, the machine is right and we're not exposing this probabilistic sense in, in, in enough, I, I feel, so that we're not distrusting the machine enough. Yeah, I agree. And and it's it's maybe even a larger point of we don't distrust a lot of these tests enough, like to get back to yeah. the, the question of, you know, should we change our breast cancer screening program to produce fewer false positives? And then the great social backlash against that, because by having fewer false positives, we have more false negatives. But what is, what is the state of the art right now in uh, what medical students are exposed to in terms of artificial intelligence? Very, very little, as far as I can tell, because it doesn't really exist yet, at least not in a in a way that we can say this is what you know we're going to be doing with our artificial intelligence tools. Um, electronic medical health records are here. They've been implemented. They're pretty much everywhere. I'm not aware of any place that still uses paper. In fact, I believe the Affordable Care Act um, sort of mandated a, a move away from paper. You know, we've done this to ourselves in a lot of ways. But yeah, in terms of education, it's not clear what we should be teaching our students because we don't know, especially medical students, because they still got three or four years of residency ahead of them. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to be using these tools for in five years. I found, so the, the paper that we use to, to start discussion with um, medical education must move from the information age to the age of artificial intelligence. Um, I wasn't sure what to make of the claim that they started the paper with saying that the information age was something that ran roughly from the 1970s to the 2010s when machine learning came around. And now we're in the age of artificial intelligence. And I thought, is this a is this a generally accepted idea that we're outside of the information age and something has surpassed it and artificial intelligence is is genuinely taking over? And I thought that seemed a little premature. Um, yeah, I'm with you exactly. And I and that's kind of where where I sit in this decision as well. Is I worry that the inevitability of this stuff is assumed mm. and that the format of it, again, just sort of using the word intelligence rather than, I don't know what, maybe there's a better term you guys can help. Oh, I don't know what intelligence is. And, so. Yeah, we don't know what yeah. intelligence is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Artificial or otherwise. You're right. right, exactly. But yeah, it, it's, it's going to take a toll on the industry as we just kind of assume that it's going to take over. Well, I think this question of agency is interesting that you bring up in, in the, the health and well-being of the doctor because it's going to affect... It, it is if it is affecting everyone, right? I mean, it's it's partly the machines, but it's partly just the societal machine of the way that the healthcare system is set up, right? 
where doctors are becoming cogs in this factory, right? They become like, you know, assembly line workers in, in a factory. And that's in some way uh, the, the design of the, the healthcare system is incentivized to move in that direction. And it's dispiriting to doctors. Right. Uh, so maybe I wonder, there's... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Joe. No, no. I was just going to say, I, I wonder, um, you know, is there a way to improve upon that where we can take the the human beings involved in the system as uh, as an important component yeah and maybe even there's a way to use these intelligent systems to promote physician well-being i wonder if there's a a use of them to turn it on its head instead of like turning doctors into cogs in a machine elevate doctors what what is it about doctors that we can leverage so that they're spending less of their time being data entry technicians and more of their time being the humanists that they kind of that they want to be that they trained to be you see a lot you see an awful lot of students going through your program and they probably have a conception of what it is that they're getting into when they start out at medical school so what 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 are the reasons that people are getting into medicine and and what sort of misapprehensions might they have well, um, it's it's a real it's a real pro-social thing to do with your life. It's an amazing the impact you have on people's lives as a doctor is is, is all for the good. And um, my hat's off to anybody who who goes into medicine as a as a profession because it's really it takes a lot of personal sacrifice, uh, it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication, and you can do a lot of good. And the, the students that I see, both, you know, the medical students who come into medical school and then the residents when they get out and, you know, you're sort of a doctor with training wheels for three years. That's the residency system are uh, they're dedicated. They they're it's, they're smart. They're fun to work with. Um, and I love them all to pieces. I think, however, that we still have a societal myth that being a doctor makes you wealthy. And a lot of these. Students, Is that not true? Well, it, it can be true and it can also not be true. Uh, a lot of these, a lot of the residents that I see are several hundred thousands of dollars or even millions of do dollars worth in debt from having to come to medical school. In their residency program, they're going to be making maybe $60,000 $60, a year uh, on average for three years, working 80 hour weeks. Uh, a lot of them have are married and have kids, and this is their. You know, this is their career. There's really no upward mobility except to finish your residency. And then after that, you know, some people can parlay that into a, a very lucrative career. But the, you know, primary care, the hours don't get shorter and the compensation doesn't get a lot better. It can. It depends on who you, you know, who you work for. But if you want to start your own clinic, if you want to be the, the frontline person who is doing good in the world, you start a clinic and you have patients that you can spend time with, you're not going to be able to make huge amounts of money. Um, so if there's a so if there's a huge amount of delay of gratification that has to go on in a medical student, someone who's pursuing this for you know, the amount of time that it takes to develop an, a doctor, what are the odds that you know they they end up in some place where they feel gratified by all of that, and they're in a position where they can leverage everything that they've actually Every, everything that they've been taught and everything that they've come to expect, what are the odds that that happens? 
I suppose those are where you see some of that suicide rate. Um, that's right. It. Yep, and the burnout, and that's why the the odds are are too low. They should be they should be higher. And I feel like in the medical education system, and I think there's a lot of movement toward this, uh, and you see it in that paper uh, that we're using as our jumping off point, that there's a, a real desire to push leadership training and team building and communication skills to, to sort of empower uh, our trainees who will be future doctors so that they're in a better position to advocate for themselves and build healthcare systems that are more effective for patients and be more central in the process, since it seems like the, the march of machines is going to be taking over uh, a lot of the work that doctors have been doing for the last hundred years. Well, if we've got a robo-apocalypse, what is the robo-utopia that, that might exist in 20, 30, 50, 100 years if, if things could be improved for the welfare of doctors and, and for patients with the assistance of artificial intelligence? Well, I'll give you an example. So I heard a, a, a community practitioner out here in Michigan on the western edge in the lakes area um, has a clinic. And what he does when he sees a patient, especially an older patient who may or may not have a family member uh, with him or her at the time, he gives the patient an iPad. He himself has an iPad. And then during the clinic visit, at any point, that something interesting is said or a question is asked or important information is being either, you know, being talked about, either of them can push a button on the iPad. And what that does is it puts a little timestamp. At the end of the clinic visit, the patient has, and the doctor both, have access to a video of the interaction with all these little timestamps. Who pushed the button? The doctor flagged this as important. The patient flagged this as important. And that can be shared with family members. Uh, and it can be, it's part of the medical record. The doctor can go back and review. Uh, and that way, um, this is a, a, a kind of tool where it's patient-centered in the sense that we're focusing on the conversation that you're having with your provider. And the documentation is direct. You know, did we talk about this? You know, what exactly did the doctor tell me to do when I came home? Which is a big issue. There was a big study at, at the University of Michigan a few years back where they just interviewed patients leaving the doctor's office and they simply asked, what did the doctor tell you to do? And it was, I can't remember what the exact percentage was, but it was not a hundred percent. What a great idea. Only... I, I love the, I love the idea of documenting it like that and being able yeah. to timestamp. Yeah. And I, th and I think that as systems get more intelligent, you can really leverage that kind of system so that, you know, medicines are dosed correctly, that you could connect your pharmacist to that kind of thing so that if your doctor says you need to get this prescription, it gets packaged and sent to your house so you don't have to go to the pharmacist. Mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. And I think a lot, of, a lot of things could move in that direction, sort of facilitating the patient-doctor communication, facilitating the documentation of what was talked about and the next steps, and facilitating the patients, empowering patients to make you know, to follow their treatment decisions. I like that. I mean, it also kind of speaks to the, the issue of what we were talking about before around accessibility and making it more equal in terms of how people can access healthcare and doctors can use the latest and greatest technologies. If, if these types of technologies are available everywhere and doctors and patients can communicate more effectively both together and then remotely, 
it feels like there's an opportunity there to start pushing out the highest quality of healthcare to the farthest away and, and most uh, distant clinics from the center of, uh, you know, the, and so it's not, you can get the best healthcare, not just in the top medical schools, but also like, you know, in the rural clinics and uh, other places where you, you, you might not have access to, to that today, but maybe in the future we can use technology to actually reduce inequality in the delivery of care. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think all, all physicians want to do the best for their patients. That is, goes without saying and without question. But the dissemination of information, we're finding that this works better or this is the best dosage of this drug or you know, these are the treatment conditions that, um, that, that need to be met for this disorder. Disseminating that out from the, the big research hubs into you know, all the various rural and, and, and far-flung clinics is a, it's an undertaking. There is a big commu- uh, continuing medical education system that attempts to do that, but it is it is slow going. And yeah, I see there is a big role for uh, for using technology to make those decisions go, uh, make those innovations go farther and faster. What kind of advice do you think you'd have to a medical student, uh, maybe someone who's in college thinking about medical school, about what kind of future they might be looking at? Oh, I would definitely go. Go talk to doctors. Have to go and see it. Uh, see it for yourself. It's really kind of amazing when you train someone to become a musician, you give them an instrument from day one and they are playing. Uh, that's what the lessons are. They are, here's your instrument. And maybe when you go to the conservatory to become a professional, that's when you take your theory classes and that's when you take your music history classes. Uh, doctoring is the other way around. We do all of the sort of knowledge work up front and then, and only then, are you allowed to actually go into a clinic and wear a white coat and, and see what's going on. So uh, it's a very different feeling being in a clinical setting, not as a patient. So if you can kind of, if you're interested in going into healthcare, uh, I would highly recommend go see if you can, uh, if you maybe get a job at a clinic um, as a receptionist or, or, and, and sort of see the, see the way it works from the inside. Do you have uh, any programs at Wayne State that that help facilitate younger people or early early medical career people for something like this? One of my favorite things that happens at the Wayne State School of Medicine. So Wayne State's in Detroit, and uh, and Detroit has a lot of healthcare disparities issues because there's a lot of poverty, um, and it's a it's an interesting urban environment. Uh, it's a challenging urban environment um, because there's a lot of people who have uh, large healthcare problems and not a lot of money. And we have a program that we call the Urban Medicine Program, where first and second year medical students are given a backpack full of just sort of basic first aid and basic medical care equipment. And they go out and talk to homeless people and say, ask them questions. How are you? How are you feeling? Do you have any healthcare concerns? Are there any um, anything you want me to look at? Have you, do you have any wounds that need treatment? Um, you know, have you been diagnosed with diabetes? You, you want me to check your feet? And I think that that is a, uh, the kind of experience that a lot of uh, younger medical students and even a lot of people who might be interested in going into medicine should sort of get in the habit of, of learning how to talk to people, learning how to talk about healthcare issues with people, which is a little daunting at first, and to sort of become a, a hero, getting used to becoming kind of that somebody's health hero uh, 
and, and, and becoming comfortable in that role because that's, that's the tricky part. Uh, and we don't teach it early enough. Well, Brent, I think that's, uh, that's really uh, maybe a good place to wrap up the conversation here. I think that, you know, the work that you're doing and <clears throat> improving the education of doctors is super important and really fascinating stuff. So I, I appreciate your coming on the show and talking with us today. No, thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Yeah, and I think we should talk every five years for the next hundred years, and then we can uh, see what the progress of artificial intelligence looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. It's a date. <laughs>